You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Praise Him, all creatures here below. It's good to be back. And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. What a wonderful time of worship we had this morning. Let's pray before we get too deep. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for all the wonderful things you have done. We praise you, God, that our God, that you, our God, is greater and higher. There is none like you. Father, we know that we have an advocate before the throne through Jesus Christ, and we thank you, Lord, that you are on the throne. And Father, we right now want to just echo that sentiment that's going on in heaven, Lord, that we would sing all blessing and honor and glory and dominion are yours because yours is a powerful, wonderful name. You have no rivals. You have no equals. So Father, this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart please you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 115, would you stand as we read God's word? If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You may be seated. How many of you have control issues? If you're not sure, I've got some tests that can help you. The first test is how how you live, how you think when you're around a remote control. Have you ever been in your living room and someone else having the remote control and they're in total control of what the family or what others are watching? Have you ever sat there and just wish I had the power? I need the control? Another thing that you can kind of test your control issues on is how you feel when you're around a steering wheel. (laughs) Have you ever sat in the passenger side while somebody else is driving? That feeling of anxiety, that feeling of trying to say, you could go faster, or you could go slower, or you could go this way or that way. If you made that turn, it would be a whole lot better. If that's how you feel, you may have some control issues. Well, let's be honest. We all have, to some degree, some control issues. Uh, And let me just give you what some of those things look like. If you struggle uh, with allowing others to do something they normally do, you may have control issues. Uh, if, uh, if you want to prove that you're always right, you may have issues. If you get anxious or angry when someone suggests something different than what you have already planned, you may have some control issues. If you have very little patience with other people when they don't get what you're saying, you may have some control issues. If you're often stubborn and unwilling to change, 
If you believe that your way is the best and only way, and if you want to help, if you constantly feel the need to help others make decisions in life, you've got some control issues. Why is it that we, some, of, some of us deal with that and some more than others? And the reason that we struggle with control is because we want to be in control. But the reality is, is that we're not ultimately in control because we know the Bible is going to teach us that God is in control. So the struggle in our heart is ultimately not with other people. It's not against flesh and blood, but it's really this battle for supremacy in our lives against God. We want to be in control, but as we try to latch on and take control, we realize how very little control we have. Well, Psalm 115 is a worship song. It was a song written, we don't know the author of the song, but it was a song written for public worship. Just as we sang that newer song today, do you know that there's always been new songs? And, there, and when you're in heaven, you're going to be singing a bunch of new songs, but they're all going to be about the only one that matters that we should be singing about, and his name is God. And so this worship song was written to declare faith in God over and against the worthless idols of the nations. The song here that we re just read parts of inspires hope, trust, and confidence in our sovereign God in the midst of difficulties and in the midst of the struggles of life. And what we learn in this text and in many other texts in the Bible is that God is absolutely, totally sovereign over all things. And His sovereignty is what makes Him utterly unique and it proves that there is none like Him. So as we conclude this series of Awesome God, as we've looked at the different various incommunicable attributes of God, all of them will see, will come to fruition as we see that God not only has ability, but He has authority. And here's what I want you to learn this morning. It's real simple. God is sovereign. We are not. Therefore, we must put our trust in him alone. So let's walk through that. Number one, God is sovereign. Verse number one, not to us, O Lord, not to us. In the Latin, those of you classical conversations people, non nomis domine. Not to us, O Lord. This phrase has been used all throughout history, and various historical figures have said in the Latin, non nominis domini, and it is to proclaim the greatness and mercy and deliverance of God. William Wilberforce, that great abolitionist of England, who uh, was contemporary with John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Uh, after the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom, he quotes this verse, not to us, O Lord. This verse is the summation of what the psalmist is trying to teach in the hymn, but also it is moving us from self-glorification to God-glorification, from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And the doubling of this phrase, not to us, is the emphatic of that, not to us, not to us. I want to make sure, God, you understand, it ain't about me. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. The word name here is found all throughout Scripture. It speaks of the totality of who God is. The name that Moses asked, what is your name, in Exodus chapter 3, is that name Yahweh. As you see here in verse number 1, not to us, O Lord, that capital L-O-R-D is the word Yahweh. And the word Yahweh, what it meant in the ears of those who heard it is that he is the covenant-keeping, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, self-existence, eternal, never-changing, all-loving, merciful, limitless God. He is the great I am. Everything that you are not, 
I am, God says. And everything you ever hope to be, I am. Not to us, but to your name be the glory, the weightiness, the honor, the worship, the praise. See, we are natural born worshipers. We will either worship ourselves or we will worship other things or we will worship God. But you are incurably religious. So not to me, not for my worship, not for my self-exaltation, but to your name be the glory. Verse number two. Why should the nation say, where is your God? Here, the psalmist moves us into this understanding of the people at this time that the surrounding nations around Israel were taunting them for believing in the name, in Yahweh. A lot of scholars believe that this was written after the exile. There's some internal clues, which I'll talk to you about in a little bit, that maybe show us that it was written in the post-exile Israel world. But after the exile, where the people of Israel had left Babylonian captivity, they are now living in a land that is strange, that is, that is different because of the years of bondage, or years of captivity away from the land. And, and all the nations surrounding the nation of Israel and the people People of God were now making fun of and ridiculing them, saying, listen, where is your God? We don't see him. We can see our God. We don't see your God. Where is your God? And listen, it's ever since Cain and Abel, people have been making fun of believers. And so, verse number three, they make this declaration. The nations are saying, where is your God? Where is your God? We don't see him. Verse number three, the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. You may not be able to see our God. You may be able to see your God. But our God is God and your God is not. Our God is in the heavens. And he does what he pleases to do. And what we learn there is that declaration. It is a declaration that echoes all throughout the entirety of the canon of scriptures. It is a declaration of God's absolute sovereignty over all things. Simply put, the idea of sovereignty is that God rules over all things. He is in control. He is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override and overrule all powers and authorities. The reason why they use the word Lord in the Hebrew, Adonai, but yet because it's the name Yahweh, they don't want to write the name Adonai, or they don't want to write the name Yahweh, Jehovah. They use the word Adonai, but this word Adonai, but also in the New Testament, Kurios, this word Lord, when speaking to who God is, is found 7,767 times in 6,603 verses. It is to point us to who He is. But nothing escapes God's rule. Nothing escapes his influence. Nothing can successfully stop any act, event, design, or purpose that God intends to bring certainly about. And so just as God is limitless in his location, limitless in his strength, limitless in his being, he is limitless in his sovereignty over all things. Those all things there, when it says here, the Lord does all that he pleases, can include the following. 
God is sovereign over seemingly random events. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over nature. The Bible says in Psalm 135, verse number 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. It is he who made the clouds and at the end of the, uh, the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings from the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God is sovereign over leaders, amen? He's sovereign over presidents, over kings, over politicians, over congressmen, over mayors, over city council. The Bible says in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign over the nations. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. God is sovereign over human decisions. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. See, I want you to understand that God is not just in control of many things, not just in control of most things, but God is in control of all things. A.W. Tozer writes about that in which he says that nothing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do what he pleases everywhere forever. Jen Wilkins in her book, None Like Him, says that how we connect God's omnipotence. See, am I just saying that God's all-powerfulness is the same thing as God's sovereignty? And there's some nuances to that. And so Jim Wilkins says that when, while God's omnipotence asserts that he has no limits in his ability to act. So omnipotence says that God can do whatever he wants to do. There is no limit to his ability. God's sovereignty asserts that there are no limits to his authority to act. So God not only is able, but God has authority. God's not just capable, but he's qualified. Now think about this. When the Bible gives us imagery of God... When you envision, if you were to just close your eyes right now, you don't have to do that. Some of you are already doing it. <laughs> you were in preparation for this point, I know. But when you imagine God, how do you imagine him? On the throne, right? That's a biblical imagery. Why is he on the throne? Because that is his rightful place as king. What the Bible teaches us is that God has both power and authority. And in life, you may have power but no authority. Or you may have authority and no power. Let me explain this to you. Let's just say that you and I meet for the first time today. We have quite a few guests here this morning. So let's just say after the service, you were just so enthralled by the sermon that you said, you know what, Pastor, I want, to come, I want you to come to my house for lunch. I want you to come to my house for dinner. And so I come, and I have the ability to come to your house for dinner. So I come into the house, and, and, and as I come into your house, I have the, the ability to eat dinner, uh, and, and I also have the ability to go places that you authorize me to go. So, so sometimes when I go to someone's house, I want to go to use the restroom, wash my hands, and, and, and be ready so that I can eat and eat all kinds of wonderful things that you're going to prepare for me. And I have the ability to do that. But what I don't have the authority to do is I don't have the authority to go through your closets, to pilfer through your fridge, to turn your thermostat down because I like it cold, to tell your kids what to do or to kiss your wife. <laughs> right? I may have the ability to do those things, but I don't have the authority to do those things, right? It's not my house. I don't pay the bills. Those are not my kids, and she's not my wife. 
So you can have ability, but not authority. But if you have authority and ability, that's what God has. And so what we learn here in Scripture is that God is not only all-powerful, He has might, but all-authoritative, He has the right. There is no access denied for God. So God has authority. Why does God have authority? Because He's the author of the universe. And so it is God's prerogative. He can do what He wants to do. And so if God wills something to happen, it will happen. And he is completely free to act according to his decrees and requires permission from no one. Because no one can give him permission. And here's the beautiful thing. God is not some cosmic watchmaker that just creates the world, flings it in there, and has watches to see what happens. God is never the victim of circumstances. He is Sovereign. There's so much more I can say about this. But we'll have all eternity to bask in the glory of it. God is sovereign. We are not. We are not. God is sovereign. We are not. Verse 4, the psalmist now is going to compare, as you see this comparison all throughout the Old Testament particularly, compares our sovereign God against the worthless idols of the nations. And as you read through here, these idols are the work of human hands, of silver and gold. They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell, hands but don't feel. They look the part, but they have no power even though you may give them authority. They don't really have authority. They are the work of human hands. And so they are made in the image of their maker. They are created by a mortal human that is neither omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, nor eternal. Now, the nations that surrounded Israel all worshipped gods and goddesses that were the work of their hands. And in doing so, they gave to them the sovereignty, control, and they even ascribed to them sovereignty and control over various areas of life. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was in Athens, and there I was just perusing, looking at the various statues in the in the. Uh, <clears throat> Parthenon Museum, and you have all these beautiful, robust pictures of gods and goddesses, these stone statues, people that were people that spent hours upon hours chiseling, 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 making sure that their God looks good. And guess who they looked like? If, I mean, if you're going to make a God as a statue, why not make them look like you? Right? And so these gods, they gave various capacities to. So you have the god of war. You have the goddess of fertility. You have the god of health, the god of family, the god of weather, the god of crops. And so the ancient pagans believed that their gods could do anything in those categories. They could do anything they wanted to. The one thing that they couldn't do, if you look all throughout antiquity, even to this day, the one thing that the gods and goddesses cannot do is feed themselves. I mean, even today, they're feeding Buddha. If you go to India, I've been to India a few times, and there, even in these little villages where these villages have their own gods and goddesses, there'll be this little box somewhere in the village where people bring food. They're starving to death, but they're going to feed their god. Why? Because they want their god to be happy, not hungry. Because a happy god gives you what you want. A hungry god gives you not what you want. 
Think about this, the futility of this. But yet these idols were merely projections of their own self-image. And so they projected upon themselves their identity. They projected upon themselves their worth. They projected upon themselves their value in the very thing that they made, giving them this illusion of self-sovereignty. And these things became the sources of their hope. I mean, could you just imagine trying to look around like if I took this guitar and says, you will be my God and I will worship thee. Oh, great guitar God. You'd think I was nuts. You say, Pastor, we don't, we're too sophisticated for this type of thinking. No, we're not. We're natural born idolaters, Calvin said. And we try to project our value, our image, our worth in the created rather than the creator. Because we want this illusion of self-sovereignty that we are in control. See, the problem is that we do not want a God who does whatever he pleases. We don't want a God like that. We want a God that we can control rather than a God who can control us. We don't want a God who does whatever he pleases because we want to do whatever pleases us. But you and I aren't sovereign. As a matter of fact, we have very little, if any, control over anything. A recent study out of the University of California in Berkeley, I'm sure it'll be fascinating, here's what they said. The average person has 15% of the control of their lives that they think they do. Now, they could have saved a lot of money by reading the Bible. But yet, we all live under the illusion, our own illusion, that we have our lives under control, that we control certain things. And so, we have the illusion that we have control over our health. So, through fitness, through diet, through green smoothies, through vitamins, hand sanitizers, and masks, we believe that we can keep our health healthy. Yet, I want you to understand, your bodies are fragile, and the older you get, the more fragile they become. Just one accident, one bacteria, one virus can debilitate you or kill you. One misstep, one slip, one fall, one hit can, de- can de- permanently destroy your life. You have no control over your health. You don't have control over your stuff. Now, we use locks and security systems and passwords and insurance and software to control and protect our stuff. Yet, a thief or a hacker or a fire or a flood can destroy everything we own. We can lose our jobs. We can lose our ability to make money. Things are not in our control. Just this couple days ago, some of you may know I got a a blue truck. Um, Because sky's blue and Kentucky's blue and God loves blue. (laughs) And so should you. Um, And just the other day, a little bitty rock, little bitty rock, hit just at the right point on my brand new windshield. And now it's got a crack. Now, thank God for Safe Light. Safe Light repair, Safe Light replace. (laughs) They're coming in about 10 days. But right now, I mean, you're, 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 I'll be careful. I've about said something I shouldn't have said. But all I'm going to say is there's a crack in my windshield. I couldn't control that. Thank God it could have been worse, right? You can't control your stuff. 
You can't control family, friends, or other people. You can try to control through manipulation, motivation, money, jealousy, envy, or trying to get the upper hand and use leverage. You can try to say the right words, do the right things, try to get people to do what you want. You can go to conferences, read books. You can try to be the best parent or the best husband or wife ever, yet you cannot make someone love you. And you cannot control other people's attitudes towards you. You can't keep people from leaving you, disappointing you, or your kids rebelling against you. You can't. And you can't control your future. Now, we may try, we plan, we strategize, we programize, we use calendars, and we bubble wrap our future. We look to radar and our routines. We weigh out the risk versus the rewards. We look to forecasts and projections. And we can sometimes believe that success in the past is guaranteed for success in the future. Yet we have absolutely no way to predict the future. I don't know if you watch, you've been watching some of the Olympics. Uh, USA basketball just got beat to the French. Viva la France. A couple of you that are French in the church, you said, amen. Oui, oui. <laughs> and so we stink, all right? Anyway, so I don't know if you saw, but there's a Japanese gymnast who is kind of known to be very famous in Japan. He's the king. Now, listen, don't make fun of gymnasts. They are some of the strongest people. The things they can do, I'm telling you something, I can't do that stuff. I wish I could. I know some people that do CrossFit. I mean, they would love to be able to do the things they do. I can't do that stuff. Have you ever done a muscle-up? God bless you if you have. This Japanese, he's won gold. He's the king. So this year, he just decided he was going to be only in one event, the horizontal bars. And he, everybody just assumed he was going to get gold. In the qualifiers... He does his routine. Midway through the routine, somehow he loses his grip and slips. And five years of training, five years of hard work, gone. You can't control your future. So that's why the psalmist says in verse 8, those who make idols become like their idols. Understand this one truth in the Bible. You become what you behold. Greg Beal says that, What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. The pagans could see their idols, but their idols couldn't see them. The pagans could touch their idols, but the idols couldn't touch them. The pagans could speak to their idols, but their idols never spoke to them, and yet they put their trust in them. And if you trust in anything other than God, you're going to become like the thing you trust in. And if it's an idol, it's death. They looked the part, but they couldn't do it. You know, sometimes we think that we're invincible, but we're sadly mistaken. Jen Wilkins says that when we reach for control, we announce our belief that we, rather than the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, infinitely good God, should govern the universe. And because of that, when we declare to God that, God, I know better than you do, because I'm sovereign, I'm the captain of my soul, the captain of my salvation, the result is that we live lives in fear and worry. Fear and worry are at at the very best us trying to control what we cannot control rather than trusting the one who's ultimately in control. See, God is sovereign. We ain't. You ain't. You aren't. We're not. So that gets us to the last point. We must trust in him alone. We must trust in him alone. So the psalmist here picks up, verse number 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. Verse 10, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. 
Verse 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Now, here you have these three people. You have Israel, O house of Israel, O house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. So you have the people of God, the priests of God, and then the God-fearers. This gives us a clue for some of you saying, well, how do you know this might be in the post-exilic Israel? Because verse 11 you who fear the Lord is a word that was used for the post-Israel Gentile converts known as God-fearers. So he says, O house of Israel, O house of Aaron, and the convert God-fearers, trust in the Lord for he is your help and he is your shield. Look to him as a source of protection because he is the one who does what he pleases. Verse 12 picks up on this theme and says, the Lord has remembered us. This word remember, and when you see that in the Old Testament, that is covenant language. Even in the New Testament, it's covenant language. When it comes to God, it isn't that God's forgetful, that God needs to put something on his calendar, or that God needs some sort of thread on his finger to remember. This word remember is covenant language. It says that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And God said to the house of Israel and the house of Aaron and the people that fear him that he would be their God. And so he's going to bless them. So instead of being terrified of the sovereign God, trust in the sovereign God. Just as he is infinitely great, he is infinitely good. Now the question that many of you have is, all right, well, God, if, he, if you are sovereign, if you're completely in control of all things, well, can I trust you to not harm me? See, because in our democratic republic, everyone gets a trophy, don't tread on me, society the issue of absolute sovereignty is both unfathomable and untenable. We chafe at the idea of unquestionable submission to a ruler. And the reason why is if you're a student of history at all, it's understandable because any human who's ever been given absolute authority is absolutely horrible. But yet God has absolute authority and he is absolutely good. And so you say, all right, Pastor, so you're telling me that God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely good. Well, if God is sovereign and God is good, why is all this bad stuff happening in the world? I mean, Pastor, you're up here telling us very emphatically that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Well, if God is good all the time, why did bad stuff happen to me this week? You know, if God is sovereign, why did he allow the existence of evil? How is it that God, who especially hates sin, is completely holy, cannot sin, and does not tempt others to sin, allow evil to be in the world? And so skeptics, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in the room, you would say, well, you know what, this was the reason why I don't believe in God. Because they, here's the thought, their logic. A truly good God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Evil exists. Therefore, a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. Well, Tim Keller on his book on suffering gives a great rebuttal that I couldn't do anything to expound upon, so I'll read it to you. And here's what he says. This argument has a hidden premise, which is that God does not have any good reasons to allow evil to exist. So what they're saying, the skeptic is saying, since there's evil in the world, there can't be a good, a good sovereign God because the evil in the world is pointless. He continues, he says, if God has good reasons for allowing suffering and evil, then there is no contradiction between his existence and that of evil. So they're saying there are no good reasons for evil. And what Keller is saying, well, do you think maybe there could be good reasons for suffering and evil? And if there are reasons for suffering and evil, then that does not contradict a good and sovereign God. So continue. A God who is infinitely more powerful than us 
would also be infinitely more knowledgeable than us, right? You all tracking with me on this? A God who can do anything is also a God who knows everything. And to insist that we know as much about life and history as an all-powerful God is a logical fallacy. If you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. Now, let me put this in the Allen version. God is sovereign and He is good. He may allow evil and suffering in your life or in the world, but it is for a greater purpose. So if your kid needed life-saving surgery to save their life, to increase the quality and quantity of their life, if you are a loving parent, you will allow your child to go under the painful knife of the doctor to save their life. And so as Alvin Plantinga, the philosopher, Christian philosopher says, just because we may not know or understand or see the purpose of the reason doesn't mean there isn't one. Have you ever been to New Smyrna Beach in the evening and you feel those bites? They're called noceums. You may not see them, but you can feel them. Amen? You know where the Dairy Queen is there in New Smyrna Beach? It's filled with noceums. Filled. Satan and noceums are at Dairy Queen in New Smyrna Beach. But here's the thing. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they don't exist. How many of you have physically, while you're out walking around without a microscope, seen the coronavirus? No, but you know it's out there, right? And so just because you don't have an explanation or a reason or an understanding that makes sense to you at this moment for the reason that God has allowed evil and suffering in the world doesn't mean there's not a reason. And the Bible gives us this one precious promise after many promises in Romans 8, 28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All right, so what is God's purpose? Well, here's what God's purpose is. It's to bring glory to his name. Not to us, to your name. So here's what you have to understand. If God is sovereign and God is everything, God is the author and the creator, God exists for God. God does not exist for us. We experience his goodness because God is for God. If God existed for us, then we would tell him how to rule the universe. And if that's the case, I'm out. If you're running the show, I'm out. But because God is for God, his ways are higher and his ways are better than ours. So even though we may not understand or comprehend what God is doing at any given moment, we can trust who he is and what he has done to prove his goodness to us. Corey Timboon, who went through the horrors of the Holocaust, Say that when you cannot trace his hand, you must trust his heart. And that's why verse number one says, not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Your covenant keeping, never changing, in time, on time, every time, love. And your faithfulness. You're never changing, ever present, always there, presence. Where has the love of God and the presence of God come together? In the person of Jesus Christ. 
See, Jesus left heaven and he came to earth to deal with sin and suffering and evil. And he did it in a way that would not destroy us, but would ultimately defeat evil, sin, and suffering forever. Tim Keller puts it best. He says, for whatever reason that God has allowed suffering and evil to continue in the world, one reason that it cannot be is that God doesn't care or is indifferent because God cared enough to be involved. Buddha didn't get involved. Muhammad didn't get involved. Krishna didn't get involved. Jesus got involved. And he willingly and sovereignly Laid his own life down. John chapter 10 verse 18. The Bible says he did. Jesus says no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus the highest king became the lowliest slave. To bring us into the presence of our king forever. Verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord. Nor to any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Think about this. Will you stay with me on this? If you've ever been on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, it says at the very beginning, dead men tell no tales. Well, here's something else. Dead men, dead women sing no praises. If dead men and dead women sing no praises, that's not good. God's people will praise God forever because God is for God. And because God is for God, he is for his people and his people are for him. And because they're for him, they will live forever because God is good and he's in control. Man, if God is not sovereign, you've got no hope of heaven. If God is not in control, I think it was R.C. Sproul, and I'm going to probably butcher this quote, but basically R.C. Sproul said that there is not one rogue molecule in the entire universe. There is not one rogue molecule that does anything outside of the control of God because if there were one rogue molecule floating around not submitted to the sovereignty of God, then none of God's promises would ever be guaranteed to come true. So you got two ways to live your life this morning. You can live your life fully submitted to the sovereignty of God, trusting in Him, or you can try to take control and be your own God. Amen. Miss Jackson is right. It don't work. Because if you try to take control, you're going to find yourself out of control. But if you submit to his control, you're going to find that you're under control. And, and here's, here's what you have to understand. God is sovereign and God is in control. And you can fight it. You can fuss at it. You can argue it. You can not want it. You can reject it. You can accuse it. You can do anything else you want to it. But you ain't ever going to change it. And so the best thing you can do is recognize it and surrender to it. Because one day, every knee it's going to bow. One day, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all.
Emma Thompson, who is a dear, sweet saint. She's with Jesus now. She's sitting over there in the back. It's Elroy Dell. If you saw Elroy Dell, it's his mother-in-law. She was instrumental in Elroy becoming a Christian. I love Emma. Emma used to bring me chocolates. And on the chocolates, it would have a little sticky note that says, Stay low. Stay low, preacher. She was dying of cancer. It was at her house. We all knew she was dying. Godly woman. I asked her, what do you think about all this? And I wrote it down. I wrote it very carefully down. These are her words. These are not my words. These are not embellished words. These are her words. Here's what she said. She says, I've learned in life, I've learned in my life, that God is sovereign. Nothing happens to me that doesn't pass first through His hands. Through difficulties, I have learned to trust that God is in control and not me. She says, if God is not in control, then worry all you want. But if God is in control, then trust Him with all your heart. And Miss Emma said, that's what I'm doing. And she faced death courageously, trusting in her God. And guess what? The dead don't praise the Lord. Emma ain't dead. (laughs) Emma is kicking up gold dust in glory. And she's singing, all blessing and honor and glory and dominion be to the king on the throne. And if you know that one day you're going to say it then, why don't you start saying it now? And live your life knowing that God's in control of it. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you've thrown up maybe every kind of excuse. But yet this morning you feel that tug in your heart. That's God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to you. Maybe you are a believer, but you're holding on to worthless idols, looking to them to give you identity, value, and worth that only the sovereign God of the universe can. I want to encourage you that we're going to pray, and you can give your life to Jesus. You can get right with God. I'd love to talk with you after the service or in the next steps room. We have counselors that are there that would love to talk with you. But don't leave here not knowing Jesus. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that your Holy Spirit do a work I couldn't do this morning. Father, I pray that you would raise the dead in this room this morning. Those that are dead to sin, God, would you make them alive in Jesus? Father, right now, maybe under the sound of my voice, they're feeling that conviction. Would they just cry out to you? The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, not only do you have the authority to save us, you have the ability to save us. And so, God, we ask for those. But, God, those in this room that are struggling... Where they trust your sovereignty, that you are a God that can be trusted, that even though the darkness may assail them, although they may not understand, God, that, that you are a God who is good, and you're working all things together for good. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.